Welcome to Week in Horror. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. You gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts. JL. When a shirtless Sam Elliott with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. Eugene. And we're just casually just like, yeah, so that's probably the best way to go, light someone on fire with gasoline. Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical <laughs> Johnny O. Now, it's not an Amityville. Or wherever it's Amityville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing grew from it. <laughs> News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger boat. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central at YouTube.com slash Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And wherever you listen to podcasts. One by one, we will take you. Week in Horror. <laughs> Stay scared. <laughs> welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, a little after 7 p.m. Central Time. That means it's time for another episode of the Week in Horror Podcast, the only podcast that actually would pay $200 for a broken meteor. And if you, dear horror fanatic, are listening to us at the top of the week, remember, we do this live here every single Wednesday right here on YouTube. Come hang out with us. See all the cool stuff that our editor doesn't want you to see when she cuts out all that unnecessary uh, unnecessary tangents I go on. Uh, but yeah, this week we are covering select horror films released June 18th through June 24th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I am JL, and with me tonight are the OG crew, Alex and Eugene. What up? What's up, everybody? The boys are back in town. Yeah. <laughs> I do love. I do love when we have and when we have the OG crew, like the uh, the the original starters, the the varsity team. When we have the varsity team here, this is always it's always a lot of fun. <laughs> it's hard. We're we're all pretty busy now, so this is uh, it's nice when we can swing everybody in the same room at the same time. We are embattled veterans. Is what we are. We began just like simple recordings cobbled together, you know, from like different channels, you just like and then splicing and all this into to this full fledged production that we have going on right now. So we we've been in the trenches. We've seen the shit as far as hey, podcast listen, creators go. Man, I was setting up this I was setting up this <laughs> audio equipment this weekend, and uh, I came across some of the original recordings from like like weeks three and four that I still had saved on my computer. <laughs> Oh. Oh, so <laughs> don't look at it don't look at us too how far no don't look, look at us how far we've come not what we used to be it's kind of like because this is it's like wow we've come so far it's and i don't mean when i say yeah we've been in the shit not not to not to uh not to knock because eugene's been in the shit it, but you know the real shit, and we we just like we we had difficulty making a podcast. I so, wasn't gonna compare the two. I'm not like you use I the term suck. in this shit incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I have seen. I saw the look on your face. You're like this motherfucker talking about being in the shit. What the? Fuck? <laughs> you don't know the shit. <laughs> I spent all night editing and compiling and, and, and splicing and trying to make us sound good this motherfucker taking like live rounds so. <laughs> have you ever edited under fire 
No, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> hey, going enemy. I'm trying to export right now. <laughs> oh, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's wait, wait, wait. All right. But it is so awesome. It's always great to have the original crew here. And uh, <laughs> let's talk about human Gus. Yes, we'll talk about <laughs> human Gus. A, a good inside joke from last week. I see Plothole hanging out there in the chat. That's Johnny O hanging out in the chat. And I'm sure Aaron will be along shortly. But before, we got a whole bunch of shit. We got an exciting show tonight. We have a bunch of stuff that we want to cover before, before we dive into tonight's, uh, you know, tonight's film selections. So before we get started, let me get this up here real quick. Bam, there is our amazing patron banner, all of the incredible people that helped to make this show possible by contributing to our Patreon. So we really do appreciate every single one of you. You guys make, make this possible. I mean, we're coming up on the end of season four. After this episode, 12 episodes left. And then that's season five. But, so. but here's the thing. Here's the thing for the people that don't know. A season isn't like, oh, we did 22 episodes and we're right. on the next season. A season <laughs> is 52 episodes. <laughs> It's one more year. I have caught years. I have caught so much shit from some of my friends back in Texas who were like, "Oh, so you're like, you're, wow, four seasons? Wow, okay. So how many episodes you got? Like, you know, like eighty, you know, like seventy, eighty episodes? Like, dude, man, we're like, we're coming up on on episode two hundred. Well, you only have four seasons. It's like, yeah, one every week. It's like a year is not a fucking season. <laughs> <laughs> It is. <laughs> it is for us. It is a year is a season. So I, it was the only. It just what it's what came to me. I didn't. I didn't know how else to how else to put it. But nonetheless, it is coming up. You know, wow, twelve episodes to go after this one. Twelve episodes to go before we've been doing this four years, and we've had a blast the entire time. It has been an incredible experience. But before we get there, we you know that's in the future. Let's talk about who we see who we've got in the live chat tonight before we dive into our stuff because we got a busy show tonight. So I see first and foremost Raven Darkstar's here. Good to see you, Raven Darkstar, who was first. Good to see you, bud. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, good to see you, m'lady. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Casey Cooper is here as well. Says, or are you a figment of my imagination, Raven? Raven is a figment of all of our imaginations. The unattainable, you know, that's what it is. But Raven, we're so glad you're here. Casey Cooper as well. Uh, let me see who else is here. Sherry Tilly is here. Good to see you, Sherry Tilly. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Travis Brown as well says, good evening, freaks and geeks. Good to see you, Travis. Always good to have you, bud. Brian Powell is here. Good to see you. Says, good evening, everyone. Thanks so much, Brian. Sarcasm as well says, hello, everybody. Good to see you, Sarcasm. Angel Rivera as well says, what up? What up, all you horror fiends? What up, Angel? Good to see you. How are things down there in the PR? Uh, let me see who else we got here. Keith Cooper says, week in horror. They say it takes 100 query letter rejections on average before you find representation for a book. I am one-tenth of the way, I guess. I got my tenth rejection letter today. Keep well, plugging away. Yes. That <laughs> just means you're getting yes. closer. That yes. just means you're getting closer. <laughs> you're getting closer. Keep plugging away at it, Casey. Absolutely. Wish you all the best on that. Uh, Gosh, if Heckfire's here, one of the best names on the internet. Good to see you. So what up, you beautiful people? It's good to see you, Gosh. Thanks so much for hanging out. Mr. Malort is here all the way from Chicago. He says, I remember seeing Nightwing in the theater. Holy shit. You are fucking old. No. <laughs> just Damn. a little old. <laughs> that's an old kind of an old well an old by comparison you know for, for us we say old we're talking like 40s 50s hammer horror and shit <laughs> for him you know but, but you know for for people today 90s is old so yeah i hope so is that I shocking just, i just turned 33 on uh friday last week it's like you could say like people born after what was it um 
what, 2011? Like, yeah, it's like people born after 9-11 can now legally drink. Fuck out of here. Why, why are you going to bring that negativity <laughs> into here, man? <laughs> Come on. It's wild. Yes, we have, we're, we're getting it. It, it, happens to, it happens to all of us, my friend. It does. Yeah, oh, I, won't even, I won't even go into the math we did because one of our one of our, the children are getting to an age where it's like, yeah, that's I could be grandpa technically if they started having kids when I did. Fucking wild, it's terrifying. Sally Skeleton is here. Good to see you, Sally Skeleton. Is where the horror folks at. We are right here. Ooh. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Dib Dib says, "Oh, I thought I was late. You are not late, Dib Dib. Good to see you." Um, oh, Eugene's camera unfortunately went out. He's going to pop back in here in a second. Uh, let me see here. Um, yeah, so Dip Dip, good to see you. Thanks so much for hanging out. Road Nellis name, Gab Gabbit to you. Colin, definitely not Cromwell's in the house. Says hello, everyone. Good to see you, Colin. Uh, let me see. Got to scroll down, make sure I don't miss nobody. Denova28, another one of our amazing supporters. Good to see you, Denova. Says hello, horror nerds. Hello, Denova. Always happy to see you. Charlie Welch, the Welchster, the Welchmeister, the only man on the internet you never make a bet with. Good to see you, Charlie. Always good to have you. And there's uh, Johnny O keeping uh, keeping the live chat going. Wants to talk about human Gus. Absolutely. Tony Regime is here with obligatory ghosts. Is boo at Weekend Horror. And everyone, good to see you, Tony. Oh. Always good. What's up? I said boo. Scared me. Yes. And uh, yeah, well, it's okay. <laughs> Eugene says, Gaffer, I need lighting. He does need lighting. But, you know. Uh, but Plot Hole says, Alex, you have a trivel on your back. Apparently, he's talking about your hair. We are talking hair. about his hair in the green room. <laughs> <laughs> Your hair is looking amazing. I know. Thank you. I've been growing it out. I think it's been like uh, eight months now. What's but awesome to... is that at your age, you've maintained the color. At your age and number of children you have, you've maintained the color. That's a big one. There's a couple grays that keep coming in. My wife keeps plucking them. I'm just like, leave them. Fucking <laughs> makes me look distinguished. Dist- <laughs> <laughs> oh, Casey Cooper says a year is four seasons, fall, winter, spring, and orange cone. Unless you're in Texas, then it's hot, hotter construction, hot construction. <laughs> this is true. Uh, let me see here. Uh, Eugene, what is it? Eugene? <laughs> Eugene, <laughs> Eugene quoting airplane in the live chat. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Angel Rivera says it's PR is hot and super humid down where they are. Ah, I heard it's the same in Texas. Is it hot? Yeah, it's rough, dude. <laughs> it's, it's actually it's actually fairly cool up where I am. It was seventy two last night, and then today it was it was ninety seven or ninety eight and one hundred percent humidity. So it is fucking hot out here today. Yeah. I'm going to be sweating a little bit. I apologize in advance. Uh, gosh, effect for us is getting old beats the alternative. It sure as shit does. And let me see here. Sherry Tilly says two seasons in Florida, hurricane and fire. Absolutely. And pretty soon, I think tornado season as well, because tornado alley is shifting. Man, I'll tell you what, we were down in uh, Corpus Christi a couple of weeks ago and we kept getting these alerts on our phone and they're like, look out for funnel clouds. You know, we got fun. I'm like, why do I keep getting these funnel cloud alerts? And we're driving down the road. We saw three funnel clouds. Apparently it just happens down on the coast, like right off the, the, out in the water. You just, they're just funnel clouds. Just keep, so we got to sit there. It was sunny where we were just north of us. We saw like three or four funnels. It was pretty cool. So wow. It's, it's tornado wow. season down here in Texas. Intense. Oh, Casey Cooper would like to remind us for all of us assholes talking about how old we are. He says, I was, uh, Casey Cooper says, I was old enough to go to Woodstock. I didn't, but I am old enough. LOL. <laughs> and he says his last haircut was just before his first year in college, 1970. That's got to be a hell of a head of hair. That has to, that has to flow gloriously in the wind. <laughs> if he's managed to keep it. 
That's if that's the key. key. <laughs> Damn, I didn't even think of that. Sorry. <laughs> Sarcasm says my girl and my girl says I have earned every gray hair on my head, but I don't deserve any of them. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> fucking brutal. I think I've earned every gray in this fucking beard. I really the beard have. is quite glorious. I feel like not that long ago you shaved it all off and it's back. So. Yeah, it came in quick, so yeah. I was really, really pleased. And this time, I'm taking really, really good care of it. So it's just, it, yeah. it, it, I, I, it's not fully dried. I had to because I, I, I got, I got back from the gym, and then I, I had to hit the shower, and it's, I, it's kind of like still straggly from being wet. So right. it'll probably go, you know, during during the course of the show. Um, Two seasons of the Mojave wrote in the last time. Two seasons of the Mojave, summer and December. You're not wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> the desert, it's hot, hot, hot. Holy shit, why is it so cold? Hot, hot, hot. All right. So to kick off this show, and uh, we're gonna start with some of the we'll start with some of the bad news first. Again, then we're gonna move on to the to the fun stuff. But we have to pay tribute. Unfortunately, just recently, I think it was uh day it was like yesterday or day before yesterday. Um, we unfortunately lost Treat Williams. Trey Williams passed away. Uh, it was a it was a kind of a shock because he was in great health. Unfortunately, it was an, uh, it was an unfortunate motorcycle accident um, up in Vermont. Uh, apparently, he was an avid motorcycle rider as well as an avid pilot. He was a commercial he was a commercially trained pilot as well. Um, but he was out riding his motorcycle. Unfortunately, a car cut across him. He couldn't avoid it. And unfortunately, he passed away. So, all you motorcycle riders out there, be safe. Um, but yeah, we uh, we showed Treat. A lot of fucking love. At least we showed a lot of love. Johnny O did not. Johnny showed all over him. But we showed Treat a lot of love because we love Tree Williams here at Weekend Horror. We love him as the substitute. We love him in his little in the little turns he had in some various horror films here and there. And we love. Uh, so we wanted to pay tribute and say it was a bummer that we lost him. You know, but uh, we got his great filmography. And if you non horror stuff, if you fucking loved him in Everwood. Or you loved him in um, oh, there was that medical one he did. I can't remember his filmography, but he's got a, he's got a fantastic filmography. You know that he's you know, all the fantastic works that he's done. I grew up with him on Everwood. That's where I you know first encountered Treat Williams. So it's kind of a bummer. You know, it was, it was a shame, but uh, but we we have a lot of work of work of his to remember him by. Oh, so, well, that, that also that also brings up like it's the motorcycle riders. Please always be safe. And then people who are driving cars and trucks, please always look out for motorcyclists. Always, yes. always, because they're there. I mean, they are there, and they don't have that armor protection like a car does. God, even no, even in a car, it's yeah. You got to think about it. like I just got a, I got rear-ended by a fucking BMW a couple four weeks ago, and like it's nobody's paying attention. I was yeah. stopped. We were completely stopped at a very known stopped point where it's always traffic. So it's if you drive that way every day, you know we're going to be stopped there. I stopped my car. I looked in the rearview mirror. Guy was not paying any attention. Slammed right into the back of me. So pay attention because nobody fucking else is apparently. Yeah. Absolutely. Travis Brown brings up, I think I first remember Treat Williams from in the 1996 Phantom film, but Everwood is where I really got to know him. Absolutely. And uh, Travis Brown also reminds us the Tales from the Crypt episode, None But the Lonely Heart with Treat Williams. Fuck yes. His horror, his little, you know, like forays into horror are out there. They're few and far between, but they are out there. So he contributed to the genre. And he was an amazing actor, extremely talented, well-loved amongst, you know, amongst pretty much the entire community. 
And I loved his body of work, so it's a shame. And, of course, Plothole says, that's a dick move, JL. It's a dick move because you're a dick. It's I'm not telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, and Casey Cooper says, apparently Cormac McCarthy passed away. Did that happen? Did it happen? Um, yes, he did. He passed away at 89 years old. He wrote the, he wrote the road and a number of other, he was a prolific writer. Um, wow. So he passed away as well. Yeah. He wrote road, no country for old men, blood Meridian. So many of his films have been adapted into film or so many of his, his books have been adapted into film, but, uh, all the pretty horses. Uh, but yeah, that's a damn shame. Cormac McCarthy passed away as well. Okay. And and I, uh, I Liam, Liam Wakefield just brought up another point. Plus cyclists and horse riders. And that's definitely something you run into down yeah. here in the South, for sure. <laughs> this is true. So, yes, please be safe out there, motorcyclists. Um, please be safe. Wear your helmets. Be aware. And those who don't ride, ride motorcycles, those who are only driving cars, be aware of motorcyclists. Because they, like like Alex said, they don't have that protection. But uh, rest in peace to uh, Trey Williams and, of course, uh, Cormac McCarthy as well, which is a shame. But... Um, but yeah, so I wanted to get the bad news out, you know, pay our respects to a legend and then jump onto some stuff. This is really, really interesting. So <laughs> we actually asked this in a previous, uh, it says maybe this is just inappropriate. Maybe plot hole. Oh, just because I did like his acting choices. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I got wind or the news hit recently, just a couple of days ago. And we ask this as a trivia question. Should the Leprechaun franchise be left to die? Or should it continue? Well, we have an answer now. Like an official answer. <laughs> and that is Lionsgate, as, as, as of June 9th, is reviving the Leprechaun franchise with a new movie from director Felipe Vargas. So for those not familiar with Felipe Vargas, Felipe uh, uh, Vargas directed a, an award-winning short film called a horror film called uh, Milk Teeth. You can find it on YouTube, so be sure to check that out. But they are bringing the Leprechaun franchise back. And it essentially is kind of a soft reboot. So it's going back to the beginning and doing it again. Warwick Davis will not be involved. Which kind of ruins the whole fucking thing, but, you know. What are your thoughts? I, that ruins it. I, it's going to be hard to... I, it's such a cult film that I think I think it's going to have a hard time catching on with today's audience without having Warwick in there. Um, agreed. I mean, think about it. there's one Leprechaun movie without Warwick Davis, and that movie's really bad. Like <laughs> really <tanked>. bad. <laughs> there, there were two. There were two Leprechaun film uh, Leprechaun films. There was uh, Leprechaun um, Returns and Leprechaun Origins. Okay, I'm thinking of Leprechaun Origins. Yeah, but both of them were awful. Yeah, both but that was that was bad. That yeah. was just really, really bad. Um. The thing is, it's when you have somebody who's so infused in a franchise. So, like, with, like say for Warwick Davis, uh, what do you think about uh, Doug Bradley and um, Hellraiser? When you think about, it, you have some of these, you have some of these people, the, they carry the franchise. They do when, and when you have multiple people play like Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers, then you have that freedom. To like, oh, we can bring in another leprechaun and we can kind of keep this series going. But you take somebody like, like for example, we talked about Robert England. Robert England is Freddy Cougar. If they had a different Freddy for every single movie, then by all means, fine, whatever. 
but you have Warwick Davis. Like, yeah. how if you make try to make it scary, they already tried with Origins, and it was terrible. And if you try to make it funny or a fun comedy, we already have that. <laughs> so what do you do? What about you, Alex? I don't know. I, I'm I'm terrified, but not in the way that we like to be terrified on this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Leprechaun. Uh, Travis Brown brings up the Hornswoggle. Hornswoggle from WWE. Hornswoggle was brought in to play Leprechaun, the Leprechaun and Leprechaun Origins, and it wasn't even really a Leprechaun. It was like this monster thing that came out of a well. I have no fucking clue. I, I literally forgot that movie after I watched it. But the last two have been absolutely terrible. But Lionsgate is bringing it back. So. What are your thoughts? Oh, hold on, hold on. Casey right. Cooper made a, a very important point here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's one way that they couldn't fuck it up for sure. Casey Cooper, Casey Cooper says they should see they should CGI Conor McGregor as the leprechaun. That'd be fucking hilarious. He just goes around punches people. That reminds me of the movie Forty Two. Uh, or movie forty three, movie forty three with with Jerry Butler as yeah. the leprechauns and that because that shit was fucking hilarious. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Um, and someone else said at least oh wrote in the last name said at least they're not going to try to digitally shrink Mark Wahlberg as a leprechaun. That would be fucking weird. So, but definitely let us know your thoughts in the comments below or weekendhorrorgmail.com. Lionsgate's bringing it back. What do you think? What are your opinions? I'm really really curious. Okay, okay, they- I'll throw a name out there. And I just want to see your opinions, and this is a curveball, right? Okay. It could work, could not work, but just thinking of uh, little people playing that role. Peter Dinklage. Oh, okay. As good as he is and as funny as he can be, he would never take it. No, but if you wanted to pull an audience that's you know more relevant to today's times, that would probably Maybe. be the way to do it. You'd have to, you'd have to dump truckloads of money. In him. And I'm yeah. talking just just back back yeah. up the mint to his house <laughs> and just beep 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 and just shower him, just make it rain, you know, and then he would come in and do it. <laughs> I just want I just want to throw it out there. I obviously he was, he's not going to play. He's making a million dollars an episode on Game of Thrones. He does not need the money <laughs> by any means. Um, and he is such a talented and he has such a great range as an actor that, yeah, I mean, it's just, he would never, I won't, I don't want to say it's like beneath him, but it's something that he would like never do. I just want to throw it out there just to see what people said. That'd be interesting. I'd like to hear what people think about that as well. I loved him in his late, in, in Cyrano, his latest is Cyrano de Bergerac. His, his latest way, he was fucking phenomenal in that. Absolutely phenomenal. He's great um, in everything, man. He's fantastic in everything he does. Everything he does. But yeah, so let's let's hear your opinions. Now, moving forward. Hold on, hold on. Before you go forward, can I throw something uh-huh. out there? There was yeah. a movie, and before I forget it, I, I want to know if anybody in the audience has watched it because I, I came across it and I haven't got a chance to watch it. It's a Cronenberg film that came out. Um, it's called Crimes of the Future. Yes. If anybody's seen it, let me know because I don't want to get disappointed because it's been a long time since I've watched a new Cronenberg Dude, it, film. It's it's Cronenberg, man. I know, and so it's got to be great. But you can't but, go in, but you can't go in with expectations. In but Kristen Stewart's in it. So Kristen Stewart, like, change, oh, her role is not as big as Vigo's or okay. um uh, oh what's oh, I forget her name. God, I'm gonna smash myself in the face later. Uh, yeah. But anyway, but but her role is smaller. So and plus, she always does good with ensemble films. Like she was good in Underwater because the focus was not all on her. Right. 
So that that's the important thing. It's like when okay. she, I, I don't think she's got the, I don't think she's got the chops to care to like carry as a lead. Cause I've seen like, like personal shopper and a number of other films that she's done. Right. Not great. But when she's part of an ensemble like Adventureland or American ultra, she actually does quite well. Okay. She was really good in American ultra, but that was supposed to be like a, you know, dopey. Pop that was an movie, acid so. trip of a fucking film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, shut up, Johnny. O. <laughs> she's like, no, she wasn't. She's not been good in anything. She has been good. She does have chops. She does. Um, Oh, but okay. So moving forward, and I got to bring up this blast of the past. <laughs> so I came across this, and I'm sure a lot of people are, are familiar with it. But uh, maybe some of you in the live chat are not. But we have to check this out, and I'm, it's a teaser for an upcoming series that will be on Peacock. We're gonna watch it real quick. Um, I hope you all dig it. Uh, let's just—I'm not even gonna spoil. It. Let's just check this out. Yeah, just play it. Let's Go just see. Play it. So I had to show everybody. The teaser for Twisted Metal, because <laughs> I grew I grew up playing it on the PlayStation. Oh God, PS One, yeah, dude. Yes, I still have the disc. <laughs> and I remember the reboot for PS Two, and it was all like super dark, and it used like fucking Rolling Stones painted black as the is the yeah, music. Oh, Twisted Metal Black. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I I and I so I remember it, and it blew my. I was like, no fucking way. How did it, I mean, and it just kind of popped up because I saw the trailer. Pop. I was like, no shit. It's got Anthony fucking Mackie in it. And there's a clip out there of a fight between Sweet Tooth, the clown, the clown ice cream guy, and Anthony Mackie's character, John Doe. And apparently Sweet Tooth is voiced by Will Arnett, which <laughs> is just amazing. It's so good. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you get a chance, go check out that clip on YouTube because it's, it's hilarious and it sets, I think, what the show is going to be because I think this is going to be good. I think Peacock's really stepped up in their original series recently. And so it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's probably going to be pretty good. <laughs> oh, let's see. Um, uh, Colin Definitely Cromwell says, Oh my god, can I can't wait for this? Jay Verse, hey, good to see you, Jay Verse. Good to see you. Says, What? That's awesome. Rodinella Sam says, Oh boy, that could be interesting. And Sir Kaz says, Oh, it no, it's okay. Uh, Travis Brown says, Oh, yeah, Twisted Metal. It looks okay for now, but after seeing Tweets to Sweet Tooth in a clip, so I have some hopes for it. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I big, I love, I like Anthony Mackie. I've, I've loved all of his work. And of course, he's a fantastic actor, comedy and drama. So, and of course, Will Arnett is going to make it hilarious. But the question is how they're going to do all the other characters and how each episode is going to play. So I like, there's no details out there so far, but it comes out, I believe, uh, next month. Yeah, so, July. July 27th. And I'm, I don't know what's, who knows, who fucking knows. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, it's one of those franchises that it can, you could really have fun with it. And it doesn't necessarily have to have a super convoluted story like some of the other like real deep video games. Think games like Final Fantasy or like Metal Gear Solid or a lot of those kind of RPG style. This could just be a fun horror meets like uh, what is it? Death Death Race oh, horror yeah. meets Death Race with uh, Jason Statham in it, and that could just be fun. Rodinella's name says, "I hope they embrace the cheese like Blood Drive." Fuck yeah! Fuck yes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. So definitely let us know in the comments. Um, if you're looking forward to the Twisted Metal series coming out on Peacock next month, I'm well, we're going to watch it. So it's going to be amazing. I hope so. I hope it's going to be amazing. It could be absolutely fucking silly. I have no idea. But it should be good. I think it would be a nice break. And I, kind of like something new and interesting. It's like, holy shit, they finally fucking did it. Because that came out in the original PlayStation back in the 90s. And finally, 2023, we have a Twisted Metal, for, uh, Twisted Metal series. 
All right. And last but not least, I came across this trailer I want to show everybody that people may not have seen. It is a new one from A24. And this is a the trailer for a film called Talk to Me, which looked really fucking cre creepy. Charlie Watts said he just canceled his peacock, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they get you. That's how they get you. So let's check out this trailer for the new A24 horror film, Talk to Me. Because it caught my attention. I figured we'd want to share it because some people might not have seen it. It's super fucking creepy. I'd like to rebut with my short film, Don't Talk to Me. <laughs> so yes australian horror film australia say uh, australian horror film which we i don't think we get enough of but yes i think it's a very and chris brings up a very cool MacGuffin. um i like it uh it looks super fucking creepy um i think this one is a, is a solid winner uh it depends as long as they don't rely on jump scares and the fact that you said it's Australian gives me more hope because it's far more creepy. Like you see her in the corner, like crawling. If you did more of like a hereditary effect where it's like you kind of see your eyes kind of focus and then it kind of comes in and you realize it's her like crawling. That's way more creepy than just jump out in front of your face. So this could, this could have potential. I'm hoping that they didn't give away. They spent a long time setting the premise up. So I'm hoping they didn't give away like all the good parts. Definitely. So it could, it could be interesting. I have high hopes. And uh, after watching that trailer, and we recommend anybody else out there, if you haven't seen it, like check out the trailer for Talk to Me and uh, let us know down in the uh, comments below what you think of that upcoming horror film. I'm looking forward to it. It's coming out the day after Twisted Metal comes out on July 28th. So looking forward to that. Absolutely. All right. So. That's enough there. We got horror movies to talk about because this is a horror movie podcast. We got a good selection tonight. Uh, Alex, why don't you kick us off? What do we have up first? All right. Let's start this off with I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Ooh, edgy. Came out June 19th, <laughs> 1957. <laughs> and then what? An adult meerkat like what uh, <laughs> 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 oh let's check out this trailer <laughs> Ooh, edgy <laughs> gotta admit some pretty good screams in that one you really did <laughs> that's pretty good all right this was uh this was written by gene fowler jr i'm sorry this was directed by gene fowler jr written by herman cohen and avon Kandel. Uh, this one stars Michael London, Yvonne Lime. Uh, there's Don Richards, Barney Phillips was in this, Whit, Bristle, Whit Bissell, sorry, uh, Charles Wilcox, uh, Joseph Mel. Um, and as you saw, this uh, pretty much played all of it in that trailer. We got a hypnotherapist who is using um, uh, hypnotism to kind of test a serum that, uh, you know, as all sketchy medical procedures go, just fucking goes sideways, turns into a werewolf, and starts fucking people up. I was very, I was very surprised that the detectives figured out that it was fangs from these two slash marks 
I was like, do you have any ideas? They just jump straight to fucking werewolf. Like, just go straight to it. <laughs> I just got through. Werewolf. You think we're going to serial killer? You know, did somebody murder him? Did he get in a... Nah, bro. What? You're stupid? I also, I also love I also love the janitor. Like, the janitor who's worked there for 12 years. And, like, he's obviously Romani. And he's like, and he's like, oh, may I see the picture? And he looks at the picture. It's a werewolf. Are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. Let's fucking run with it, baby. It's like, How often does this happen here? It's like, we get shit done. Like, the acceptance of the supernatural is so fucking fast and this film is like well it's obviously supernatural well it's obviously supernatural let's go get out the fucking supernatural torches that's what we use with the supernatural afoot <laughs> so they bust out the torches and they're ready to go oh man i actually i actually really appreciated that with this film too because so many of these films is about like well what is it and it's mystery and even some of the later ones we'll talk about today it's like a, well we got to figure out what it is and they're doing all this investigation that somebody comes in who's like an expert and it's back and forth but this is just straight like the werewolf cool let's go with it could could it be a mountain lion could it be a regular wolf could it be a type nope werewolf let's go this is it's like the opposite <laughs> of um of willem dafoe and boondock saints like he arrests the two brothers and all of a sudden these two killers are out there and they're like who the fuck could it be and it takes him an entire fucking movie to figure it out and then <laughs> it's the opposite. they walk in they're like nah bro werewolf get your bullets like let's go, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I will I will give it this, and I was I was pleasantly surprised for a 1957 film. This was extremely uh, well written, despite you know, if you try to compare it to the things that we have today, or I say the 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 cinematic sensibilities that we have today, it's going it's going to fall short. Like for example, how quickly everyone jumps on the werewolf werewolf hypothesis, and some some really really and there's a lot of things that that stand out as kind of like definitely there were products of the 50s like how women are treated how women are objectified uh women are definitely objects in this and kind of like you know that whole 50s mentality but as far as a horror film goes it was extremely well written and very well crafted i've loved the way this thing was shot the way uh the director approached it and of course each scene each area, whether it's the police station or it's the school or it's out in the woods or it's at the, the laboratory with the, with our, with our with Bissell's mad scientist. I love how every single area felt unique. There was a, a kind of a, its own approach to both lighting and the, and the way sound was captured. I enjoyed every, this was really, really smartly done. It was, it was really well done. And this would, this is the standard for cinematography in the fifties. This is a production that understood color and I know what you're saying in terms of, well, the movie's black and white. But the thing is, is you have to understand is that they knew it was black and white and they dressed sets and they dressed clothing accordingly. So you would wear things like certain types of green, certain type of pinks to know how that coloring is going to come out in the black and white. Things like, the, I think the monster set, well, the original monster set was pink. Because they wanted the walls to be light, but not too not too light like a pure like white set would be. So the, playing with colors is a huge thing. Another thing that I really appreciated about this film, and you're going to start noticing, is you're starting to get films that are marketed towards teenagers. Right. Because most films were adult-driven because they were the people who had the money they would go spend. All the Hammer horror films and all the horror films, it's always adults. But now what you're getting to, and this is what I was thinking about when I was watching this film, is it's 1957. You have drive-ins. You're the first time you're having high school teenagers with a car taking dates to the drive-thru because this is a date movie. 
Like this really, this really is, this is for teenagers. And that's why when you have the part about the werewolf, no, let's just, we don't need the investigative stuff. We need the action stuff. We need to keep the pace moving constantly. So we're keeping teenagers engaged with the film. That's the main thing that I took away from watching it. It was really well done. And having uh, having it centered around Michael Landon at the time, this early point in his career, before he would go on to like big things like Bonanza and obviously the his career he had before he passed away so untimely. But with Michael Landon at the forefront and expressing everything expressed in the script is all is is everything from the teenager's perspective. The way that we deal with authority, the way we deal with obviously the you know the difficulties of high school, difficulties of socialization, especially when you feel like an outsider already. All of these things played into it. it was extremely if the you know the writer on this the the writers on this I have to give it to them um, Cohen and Candle had a really really good sense of what it's like to be young in America at that time and going through the difficulties of high school especially with someone with kind of like this social back uh, the background of Michael Landon's character is that he's a, is you know it's a single father household so already. The, you know, the community kind of like looks at looks down on them from that perspective. It's not a a complete family. So the idea that he's already kind of on the outside and every little thing sets him off. And you know, it was a common. I mean, everybody dealt with this. So it speaks to teenagers in that way, which I really, really dug. AIP was really smart in how they put this together and how they portrayed the film. I, I it, but the the key thing that gets me was the was the lighting in this. The lighting is what sells. You talk about like coloring and how they were dealing with that, but how each individual had lighting that was that seemed to be to be set for them, whether it was Landon or whether it was the mad scientist or whether it was the cops or anything of that nature or the or when it was the werewolf itself. And I love uh, how they chose to do that because it's like because it's black and white. It's like old comic books. And that's how, like the like the old uh, dime store comic books, when each character had was portrayed a particular way to convey an aspect of that character, and I, they did it perfectly in this one. I love that and, underlighting on the mad scientist. Whenever the mad scientist around, he's always underlit, so it's like, where's the light coming from? Doesn't fucking matter. Doesn't he's, matter. He's a bad like, guy. It's it's what it is. The, the light, and one of the things that you get when you start studying lighting is lighting in films does not make sense. And when you start watching films, you start studying lighting, light doesn't behave as it should. A lot of times you'll see in lighting, you'll see a subject sitting there and you see a lamp behind them. But some of that color of that lighting is hitting like the front part of their face. Light travels in straight lines. In real life, it will never do that. But we watch a movie and we'll go, oh, yeah, that's justified. The light hitting the front part of his face coming from that lamp behind him, that's justifiable. Yeah, I can I can see that. Um, another thing is we start getting into color. Oh, uh, what color is the moon in? What color is the moon in films? It's blue. What color is the moon in real life? It's white, or it's white light from the sun bouncing it's not, to. It's Earth. not purple. I, I know. Go. I was surprised. I <laughs> but so a lot of times you'll see you'll see certain things like lighting doesn't make sense in terms of the way lighting should behave. But in movies, you like for what you're trying to reveal. You're lighting for your subject. You're lighting. It doesn't matter. You're right. It doesn't matter that they have the scientist has this under lighting coming from them. You know what? It looks evil and they went with it. Yes. Liam Wakefield. Good to see you, Liam. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Says, like the love interest used to have a band of light across her eyes in close-ups. Classic techniques like that. And this film is absolutely full of them. It's it, That's what I think what makes this film so charming and why 
it wound up being AIP's like top grossing film out of like the monster flicks that they did. And I, they, I will also give that to Michael Landon because Michael Landon is, was a tremendous actor and he brought a lot of pathos to a role that could have been one dimensional, which I really, really enjoyed. He was afraid he could be tough. The film opens up, opens up with him in a fight. And I love that sequence when he's in the scrap, right? He's just scrapping. Oh, yes, this two guys scrapping. The minute he picks that fucking shovel up, the score change, like, like the music changes and boom, you get the deal. It's like, Oh, he, he changed because back then grabbing a weapon in a fight was a big no, no. That was a big, that was an honor thing. It's like, if you're fighting with your fists, you don't pick up a weapon and start swinging. That's just against the rules. He does that and things change. And now we're going dark, which I really liked certain aspects. I, I loved aspects like that, which really, really sold it for me. Well, because the thing is, is you pick up a weapon, the fight becomes real. Right. Like you, you're, you're fighting and everybody's thinking, okay, this is a schoolyard scrap and, you know, people fight in schoolyards all the time. But as soon as you pick up a weapon, it's, I'm intending to do bodily harm at a dangerous level. Right. And that's, that's where the fight gets real and the score changes. Another thing I really enjoy about the cinematography of this film, there's a lot of camera movement. Yes. A lot of camera movement, a lot of dolly ins and a lot of push outs. And there's camera movement in just about every scene. And it's well executed. Like for something called a uh, I was a teenage werewolf, you think it's going to be some cheesy 1950 slog. But the movie's extremely well executed in terms of its cinematography. Like it feels like a big budget movie. Very dynamic. Very, I mean, I, I, and it, it engrossed me. It caught me. I was kind of like, oh, wow. Oh, from the opening fight scene all the way to the, uh, you know, and I loved the, the chase scene in the woods when they're out there in the woods and they're running around. Um, I dug that. And I'm very impressed with how they live. It, you know, I, lighting black and white films at night, shooting at night and shooting in black and white, or you know, black and white was what they had available at the time, always seemed very, very difficult to me. Um, it, I, w- I was hoping that you could elucidate a little bit, Eugene, on pulling that off, like how they pulled that off. Because when you don't have like like nowadays, we understand how there's like studio. Now you have like, you know, you can you can fix things in post. Back then you're shooting on just film stock and trying to adjust things in film stock is really, really difficult compared to what we can do now. Nowadays, we can shoot during the day and we can make it look like night in post. But back then they're shooting in the dark. They're shooting out there at night in an open wooded area. And you've got your camera, you've got the crew and everything, and you've got some lighting, but... Well, see, it's a combination. So it's a combination of the film stock you're using and the lights you're using. So back then during the day, you would actually buy film stock at various what they call ISO. And they usually start around 100, 200, and they can go all the way up to like 10,000. And... Basically, what the number is, the higher the number, the more sensitive that film stock is to light. So you would get, if you're going to, oh, well, I'm shooting a night scene, I need to get a higher ISO, or I'm shooting a day scene, I need to get a lower ISO. And cinematographers would be experts at knowing what film stock you would get. Because also on the downside is this, the higher the number, the more sensitive is the light, the more grainy it can come across. Right. If it's if it's not, if you go too high and you're not, you don't expose well. You'll get that grain that we'll see in a lot of films, especially one film we'll talk about later. Um, you'll see that. So <laughs> one of the things is getting the appropriate film stock. And then when you're looking at your moon, when you're looking at your moonlight, and the thing I liked about this is it creates these pools of light. 
because you can't just, oh, let's do a blanket light everywhere because then it's like, oh, that just doesn't make sense. But if you have these pools of light in enough enough spaces so you have characters coming into the light and kind of going out of the light with the appropriate film stock so you're still getting that information you need on the darker spots that's how you get that really good exposure at night you just have to approach it as a plan instead of having the sun basically do the work for you you're just right. having these and these are giant lights i'm talking big lights that are i mean my arm span is about six feet that's probably the size of one of those lights that's lighting an area to make sure you get the information. And then you always keep in mind, you can always darken it a little bit in post too. If it's a little bit too bright, you can darken. But if you get something that's too dark when you film it, you can't brighten it. So right. they definitely thought about this ahead of time. Liam Wakefield brings up, it says, it says how fine the silver granules are on the acetate. Just bringing that up. Excellent. And good to see you. Javier Hara is here and Mr. Andrat. Good evening, both of you. Thanks so much for being here tonight. And a sarcasm says, we have seen so many bad examples of lighting in recent films that it's very frustrating to know that it could be done so well in the 50s. What happened? Green. So honestly, what happened is the fact is this. Filmmaking has gotten cheaper. That's why. Ah. So you had this natural, you have probably this natural gate that you had to have access to X amount of money to make a film. And are there exceptions to the rule? Absolutely, there are exceptions like Plan 9 from Outer Space. But for the most part, you had to acquire enough knowledge just to be in the inner circles to get the opportunity to make a film. That's why a lot of those films are better and fewer films came out. Nowadays, with the onset of digital camera, you can buy a cinema camera for $2,000 rig it out, get a couple of lenses, so you end up investing a little bit in a camera, get a couple of cheap lights, and then you can run out and start shooting stuff. And you have things that are now people are going up on Tubi every single day. And right. people will go, oh, watch a video on YouTube, or I don't know, it kind of looks like this. So it's become the easiest now to make a film that it has ever been, but we're not getting an increase in better films. Right. And I see NANA has joined us. Good to see you, NANA. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Um, Plottle says, not if the highlights are clipping, Eugene. That might be an inside <laughs> joke, I'm guessing. But you can use a DSLR to shoot a film, too. Yeah, absolutely, you can, yeah. Plothole. I have done so. I have done so. So before we move on, uh, I, I, have to, I, have to, I have to bring this up. So my mind was kind of blown as to a moment in this film. And, it, and the moment has absolutely nothing to do with the werewolf or anything. Although I love the transformation sequence in this, the transformation sequence, which obviously is the highlight of any werewolf film. I think they took elements from the original, uh, what was it? Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and improved upon those. And then uh, utilized it. What's really cool is they added in the kind of like, um, what is that? The waterfall uh, technique to like the do the doodly 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 yeah, like like run yeah. the water over like a plate yeah, of glass like the, yeah. in order yeah. to kind of in order to kind of blur that which I thought was really really cool but the thing that got me in this one and I fucking like and I fucking love this was in the party scene at the haunted house supposedly where they were yeah where all the kids are having fun um at the party scene there is a phrase that was used by one of the other by like a throwaway phrase by one of the characters one of the characters says the term Scooby Doo and I was like, what? So I was like, doodly, doodly, doodly. that's how it goes, plot hole. That, you know, that's, a, doodly, you know, that's, the, that's the Wayne's World one. It's the only way I know how to describe it. Come on. Anyway, 
So I was watching this. It was like, I hear this guy say, say the term Scooby-Doo to one of the girls. And they, then they walk off frame. And then it goes back to the narrative. I was like, Scooby-Doo was like, I had to pause it. Because, that, because Scooby-Doo the dog, when we think about the dog, didn't come around until like 1969 was when Scooby-Doo was first on the air. Casey Kasem doing the voice of Shaggy and so on and so forth. But I was like, well, where, where? it's like, holy shit. And then what I found was like, so where does that name come from? And what I found out is that before Scooby-Doo the dog was ever a thing, the term Scooby-Doo actually comes from, from uh, British Cockney rhyming slang. And what it was, was Scooby-Doo was used to reference when so actually Scooby was used to reference when someone doesn't have a clue. So it was like, you know, look at this Muppet standing here like he ain't got a Scooby. And that would be like the slang. It'd be like Scooby, Scooby, it was like Scooby-Doo clue just like if you remember from oceans 11 if we don't do this job now if we don't do this job in reno we're in barney barney rubble trouble is that that's where that term came from and now we understand the concept of like scooby-doo doesn't have a, he doesn't have a clue and then they go and they mystery thing my i was like what well, i was like what the fuck so my mind was blown that <laughs> this was like, like regular slang out there like i was like when when alex found out that when I had to explain what mother was about to Alex and he sat there silent for a little while. <laughs> broke me that day. <laughs> I was going to go back and watch it after I watched it the first time to try to get like an idea of what was going on. Cause I was so confused. And then you played it out and I was like, I never would have come to that conclusion. So I was, it, it kind of got me. It, it got me. So I really, really, I really love this movie had kind of a mind blow moment there, but I love everything they did with the cinematography it was fantastic. And of course the werewolf transformation was, was great. And I love how they, how they, made it different how they uh, they created a monster that was different from Lon Chaney's classic you know because you right. had the Lon Chaney version of this and this one they they amped up certain things and 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 made other things demure I like the way they did this one which I thought was really really cool so but otherwise a solid fucking film from the 50s not bad not bad didn't even have to polish a turd on the first one this time no nope. so <laughs> let me ask the audience this we said uh, AIP, uh, American International Pictures, uh, was the producers on this. I want to ask the audience, what classic monster did AIP do best? Because they did do a whole bunch of classic. There's Dracula. Um, if if I can pull up my notes here. Oh, we did. Was, uh, oh, they did. Um, I was a teenage Frankenstein. Yep, mm-hmm. Frankenstein. Yep. Uh, they did everything. Aliens, puppet people. Not necessarily, you know, classics, but. Uh, they kind of touched on every classic monster at some point. They even did Cat Girl, which is, you know. Okay. AIP had a lot of really good stuff. And they I had you know, a lot of really obscure yeah. stuff that ended up being really good, which was surprising. So Tony Regime says the, the rhyming slang comes from the cartoon. It's a living language and evolves alongside the people. But we have someone in 1957 u- utilizing the term, which technically this film was shot in 1956, the back half of 96, back half, back half of 56, released in 1957. So they were using the term then, and 12 years later, Scooby-Doo would come out. So I think the slang predates, and I think that the creators of Scooby-Doo utilized uh, that slang as part of the title because it was a mystery thing and solving things. So like name the dog Scooby-Doo, because I think that was uh, the reference there. That's, that's my theory. That's, that's my theory. Scooby-Doo, where are you? No, uh, you weren't the only one singing it. It was in my head. 
right, Eugene, take us on to uh, another surprisingly good one. Yeah, this one I actually I really enjoyed. I just finished watching it. Um, it is Nightwing, which was released June 22nd, 1979. Roll it. So there you have it. You have Nightwing, directed by Arthur Hiller and starring Nick Mancuso, David Warner, and Catherine Harold. And basically what it is is you have a you have a sheriff or I'm mean, a deputy who's investigating these mysterious deaths that turn out to be bats. Now there's a whole um, there's a whole Indian lore behind it, but basically bats are terrorizing this town. And I want to say I really enjoyed this movie because honestly, something's called Nightwing. I was expecting it in real low budget, super grainy, not well shot films. I got a 1979 and, and we've watched so many of those before. And I started watching them like, this is legit production value. Like it's, this is it's weird watching YouTube and then flipping over to this and being like, the production is like the same. It's like new videos and all. I was like, this is insane. And, that's, and I had no idea what to. Jail talked this one up a lot before before we had a chance to watch it. And it was like, okay, what am I getting into? So I started and I'm watching it in the first like 10 minutes, not even the first five minutes when they walk up on the dead horse and the, the cop, he gets out of the car. Well, where the hell were you? And he's like, I was cleaning pools. And it was like, what the fuck? And then he comes up and he's like, the, the helicopter starts to land and the the cop is like what'd you do and he's like i called in this person he's like why the fuck did you do that and i was like oh these are gonna be the guys that fucked the whole thing up and i'm like this is great <laughs> yeah no, it, it played out really well it was a really good it was a really good movie I, I was surprised to see it on youtube for sure i was definitely i was i was very i was very very surprised by how well this film uh was constructed how well it was shot and the, the story mostly what really got me was the story. Now, I, I will point out, Casey Cooper says I had a Casey Cooper says I had a Native American friend who was very offended by this film, um, and it was a pretty publicized movie at the time. It was, it, it, it you know, when it when it hit theaters. Um, now, what's interesting about this is that filmmaker, this is a uh, directed by Canadian filmmaker Arthur Hiller, and Arthur Hiller was known predominantly for for war films, for crime films, for you know, romance and you're, you're very, you're very stuff. This was the only horror film that Hiller ever directed. And I think that's what made it so solid because I think this in the hands of anybody else, because Hiller had a very, very strong sense of narrative, uh, of narrative pace. And so in telling a particular story, there are certain beats that are hit in your, in your, whether it's an adventure film or a Western or a crime or, or a romance or a comedy there are certain beats that you have to hit, and Hiller knows those extremely well if you look at his filmography. But in this particular one, oftentimes in horror films, those narrative beats, you can just cast them aside. You can just throw them out. You don't need them because we have just the horror aspect. We just want to scare people. Hiller didn't do that. Hiller maintained every aspect. So this is like a horror film meets a procedural meets a kind of supernatural thriller. And what really, really got me was the blending of the supernatural aspects from the uh, from the uh, mythologies of the Hopi Indian, because it's all because uh, all takes place on the Hopi reservation, and the science that comes in to try and explain this and deal with it. And how what really got me 
where the conversations was the dialogue. Fuck, this movie was so well written. Was the dialogue between many of the characters. They, you know, the characters would go up, they would have a conversation with each other. It was David Warner and um, Nick Mancuso. Nick Mancuso, who played Young Manduran and this, who was the deputy. And then, of course, you also had Stephen Mocked, one of my favorite character actors, who played Walker Chi. And they digress on things like how science can improve things or harm things for humanity and how the big thing, white culture influencing Native American culture and how the argument uh, between embracing what the whites have can bring us hospitals and schools and infrastructure and all the things we need to survive, you know, and then the, but, but at the cost of our traditions, of our history, of our sacred places. And so putting that forefront and then bringing in this, maybe it's supernatural, maybe it's natural. We don't know, but we're going to approach it in both ways. I really, really dug that. I love the, the sense of ambiguity there where you could put your thumb on either side maybe even both and how nature and how nature and magic or mythology in this respect could blend together depending upon your interpretation. I thought this was so compellingly written and well, uh, well treated, which got me not to mention extremely well shot. Um, everybody did well, their job in this one. It was, it was well researched and you can tell, and they, they brought in everything. It just, the landscape shots are beautiful. The audio is done so well. It, it, it you can take all of because the di- you're not wrong. The dialogue is amazing, and you get hooked into this movie the whole time. It, even if you know you could take a lot of the scenes out, and you'd just be hooked on on the dialogue in this, and the the lore and the storytelling is amazing. But it just some of the shots, some of those cool shots that you see, some of the the really really far away shots that normally in that you know that day and age it would have been it would have been shitty quality, bad quality um, shots. But like you saw in the trailer, even when he was falling through that hole, that faraway shot with the lighting done just right to where they can, you know, that was an impressive stunt, by the way. It It really was. And it it looks so much farther than it was, was amazing. (laughs) It was, it was just, it was well done in all aspects Um, and, and done very well for the time, 1979. Yeah. There was a lot of good movies out then, but it was, it, this was far beyond in, in this genre too. It was far beyond. I think they focused so much on the quality that it, it, it worked out. Some, you get a lot of movies that are like, okay, we're going to do a really good job and they overdo it and they don't know what they're, they are at the end of it. This, this played well through the whole entire movie. It was, I was surprised. And JL talks up a lot of bullshit and I was kind of worried because he talked this one <laughs> up and, and you get, you get halfway through and you're like, shit, man. He is right once in a while. Yeah, and see, that's the thing. Is like I found myself really involved into the conversations in between the horror moments. Yeah, and that's the sign of a good film. Is like okay, now when they when they're having conversations of it's like oh, well, the white man worships gold, but that gold does bring hospitals. Uh, where he's coming in is like. I conform to their ways, and now we have five casinos, and we have an electric power plant, and we have a school, and we have that stuff, but at the cost of our culture, um, it just has that nice – it's that nice subtext beyond just being like a bat or kind of an eco-horror film with some supernatural elements to it. Um, it's just riveting dialogue. The cinematography is just fantastic, and the fact – this doesn't feel like a movie that's free on YouTube. I'm that I mean right. I'm gonna be honest. Every time I was like, it's free on YouTube, I'm like, 
<laughs> but this was some. But this was something that was it was exciting, and the characters are fully fleshed out. And you can tell that Arthur Miller paid attention to the details, and that's why his is better than a lot of others because a lot of people stop at the horror. Well, we have the bats, and we get some cardboard cutouts, uh, what Jay likes to call pants. So we have the pants just yeah. to fill in their role that they're supposed to fill in. They can die or not die, whatever. But it's like, no, what if we actually say have a message and a theme outside of the horror element? It was that we've talked about that oftentimes. Characterization is really what counts many of the times because strong horror not only has strong horror elements, but characters that you can root for, characters that you can love, characters that you can despise, characters that we care about, that we're invested in. That's what set yeah, was really what separates it is like, you know, the the big, you know, the the successful horror franchises that have continued on to the ones that just wind up on Tubi every single day. Because there's something there, it's it all comes down to the writing and how these characters are portrayed. And I love that there is no throughout the entire film, there is no argument while the all, all of these characters are dealing with these plague carrying vampire bats. This like giant, you know, nest of like like 50,000 vampire bats that are uh, that are attacking, you know, they're spreading out, attacking everyone. Everybody's dealing with their own with their own way, and no one's uh, interpretation of what's happening is given credibility over anybody else's, which I really really enjoyed. The it it's so I mean I have to mention that converse the conversation that was that took place between um, the proprietor of the store. There's that guy who was running the, uh, um, I think it was Charles Hallahan was running, who runs the like the, the little goods on the reservation. So he runs this little like you know goods, you know like I would say I uh, the little like um the I guess the store, the local store, uh, on the reservation, and he's a white guy, and he's been there for like decades, and he is married to a Native American woman, and they have like I think he said they have like five daughters, and so he's been trying to marry his daughters off because. You know, because you know he's a daddy. Is what what he does. But the conversation that he had uh, about the relationship between Native Americans and white people, and how him, how he initially came to the reservation to study them, to study their culture, and study the you know kind of like get a, a good uh, a good bit of information between you know about uh, the relationship between whites and Native Americans, and he comes away with a Native American wife. Native American, you know, now mixed blood um, Native American daughters and how he is kind of like in this position where he is both necessary to the tribe and vilified by the tribe and how his take on how the hatred kind of spreads and how it's built and how it continues on generationally speaking. And so here he is at the forefront. He's put himself in a position where he's necessary because he's got the access and they all need it. But it's all begrudgingly. And his take on that was, I thought was, it could be offensive. I could see why it would be offensive, but also I think kind of on the nose. So I found it to be really, really insightful. But some some may disagree. No, you're, you're, you're not wrong. Nowadays, you really got to look at that because you got that fine line between, yeah, I use this term loosely. I'm not using it as any political affiliation, but you've got like, this line of, you know, one side there's like real and there's woke and, and you got a lot of different perspectives now that you didn't have, you know, what, Jesus, 60 years ago, 
you know, 60, 70 years ago where it was like, you know, it was, this is how things are. This is how they're going to be. If you don't like it, then you get cast out now yeah. that everybody has their own kind of opinions and it not, there's a lot more um, outspoken groups. You have the ability to voice your opinion without, you know, too much. You've got groups, you've got places that you can go to talk about things that you believe in. It's not so cut and dry anymore. Not that it was cut and dry then, but it was like, you're going to do it this way and you're going to like it. Now you've got the ability to voice your opinion. And so it's stuff like this would be, you know, now it's harder to make those kinds of movies, but this one stuck to the fact that it recognized that there was, you know, different sides to the story and it played on right. both of those very well. Which there was a blunt, there was a blunt honesty. Yeah. It was like, yeah. It was like, it there was, was like a hard honest. honesty to this, which did not cast anybody in a particularly positive light. Right. So, I mean, we because we can look at it from either side of it. We could say who was the aggressor, who was not, you know, and continue on. But when you're stuck in the middle, of it, I thought it was a brutally honest perspective as someone who was standing there in the middle of it and was willing to address both sides and be like, look, man, you know, it, it, it is what it is, what it is. And you try to make the best of what you've got with, with right. you know, with dealing with this shit. And I, I really enjoyed it, and I can understand why some people would feel why, especially a Native American a member of the audience would find this to be because uh, I can see why it would be offensive. And but I think nobody comes out positive on that and addresses you know the, the addresses the bigger picture, which I think was really really smart and dicey. That was chancy at the time, especially you know in the seventies when you're trying to do an eco horror and to basically showcase everybody's got fucking problems you know there's there's no like 100 good guy in this you know everybody's got their limitations everybody's got their hang-ups and i really really enjoy because that allows you the characters to play to really really engage with one another especially when you have two people the scientist david warner and the deputy who is caught between his duty as a cop and his heritage as a member of the warrior tribe and you have these two coming together and being like, okay, you're going to approach it your way. I'm going to approach it mine. And it's like, okay. And we're, we're willing to accept this, but we have to work together in that respect. So give and take. It's a, yeah. It's a respect thing. And that's, and what, I, that's what makes a good movie. It's honesty. Cause that's, you know, you're showing life imitates art, but art also imitates life. If you sit there and throw a bunch of BS in there, people are people that know, like you're talking about the, the native Americans could be offended you don't want to say something in this movie. You don't want to put something in this movie where an entire group of people is going to be like, well, that's fucking wrong. So it just completely, so you keep the truth to the whole thing and, and it makes it real and it makes it, right. you know, harder, but also easier to watch in a way that for everybody. Yeah. Because like watching, watching this film, it seemed like Arthur Hill did or say Hiller. Um, yeah. Yeah. Arthur Hiller at least did his homework because you have a lot of Native American ceremonies that's going on uh, in terms of like the dress and wear. Like he wasn't somebody who just skipped over Native American culture. Unlike that one film that we watched, I think it was like came out like 2007, like bone. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, uh, uh, just, I don't even think. Yeah. I, I can't remember <laughs> the title. I mean, it was clearly, that was an insult to Native American culture because right. the, who, the filmmakers just did not care. Arthur Hiller at least cares and he wanted to talk about a subject. And that's why one reasons why horror is our favorite genre, because you can talk about the uneasy truths 
between the white culture and Native American culture, while at the same time talking about, well, what if they had to work together because of mutual enemy? We can really deep dive into this and let's talk about those uncomfortable things because a lot of filmmakers won't touch that. Right. Because it's a very difficult so it's a very difficult subject and it's something that can be so easily mismanaged where all of a sudden it's like, no, you're doing uh, Native American appropriation or it's like, OK, we're painting these people in bad light or these people in bad light. Right. These people, the heroes, they're slanting either way. And I like how it's like, no, what we're going to do is we're going to say what it is. We're going to fully flesh out these characters and we're going to talk about this uncomfortable subject against this backdrop. And then, hey, let's put a creature in that they have to work together in and let's just see what happens. And it worked. Yes. The the presence of a threat to everybody's way of life, which I thought was really, really good. And and speaking of which, the bats, this is the last thing I, I, I mean, going off this one. God, I fucking love this movie way more than I thought I was going to. <laughs> That I, I'm going to posit something, and I want you guys, now that you guys have seen it, I'm going to posit, and we talked about this beforehand, that there is some kind of connection between the film Nightwing and the movie, and James Cameron and Piranha 2. Okay, so for those in the live, for those in the live chat, a little bit of back backstory on this, or a little bit of like a background information. In the movie Nightwing, the bats and all of the special effects were handled by legendary special effects artist Carlo Rambaldi. Carlo Rambaldi is an Italian special effects um, artist who was, you know, like I said, legendary, worked with everybody major in Italian horror. He worked with Mario Bava. He worked with Fellini, worked with Pasolini, uh, Argento, um, a number of the greats that you've, that you've heard about, but also here in the States, he worked on fucking King Kong, the 76th version of King Kong, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He was a special effects artist who came up with the head idea for the original Alien or Ridley Scott's Alien. He worked on Possession, which we talked about a few weeks ago, that excellent Sam Neill film. He worked on E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Dune, Conan the Destroyer, Silver, Silver Bullet, Cat's Eye. The guy is a legend, or was like he passed away in 2012. So we have this legendary special effects artist who has worked on a number of big-time films that came out before Nightwing, right? Now, at the same time, Cameron is coming up in his career and is working predominantly for Roger Corman, uh, doing miniatures and models uh, for Roger Corman's productions. Now, he gets the opportunity to work in the special to work on special effects for the movie Piranha 2, which originally was directed um, by a guy, I can't remember his fucking name, um, but doesn't matter because he got into a fight with the producer on that film and he walked off and the, and the direction credit, the direction responsibilities were handed to James Cameron. So Cameron who was working in special effects, you know, at the time would be fully aware of movies like alien and close encounters and all the stuff that Rambaldi had worked on now turns around and directs Piranha 2 and I shit you fucking not. There were shots in Night with shots in Piranha Two, which copied Nightwing almost verbatim. There were the, the, the bats coming out of the the bats coming out of the darkness, the flying piranha coming out of the darkness, the bat coming up out of his shirt, the the piranha coming up out of the body. All I mean, the angles, the lighting, it was exactly like Rumbaldi did. And I think that in his earliest work, Cameron took a lot of inspiration from Carlo Rumbaldi. I, however, cannot find 
anywhere where this connection is established other than just positing it. <laughs> this is the thing. We had started talking about this and, and Jail's like, Alex, talk about this. And then he goes into this fucking red string thumbtack <laughs> conspiracy theory about how I'm happy to see this movie. Don't you see? <laughs> but, but it's not you know, far off. This movie was so good for the time that hell, if Cameron Saunders is probably like, that's that's it right there. That felt good. And you're not like, they're both dealing with flying things coming out of the dark. Yeah. One was flying piranha, the other one was vampire bats. So many things are duplicated, <laughs> even the sequence at the campfire. When the when the uh, characters at the campfire and they get bombarded like the the Christian group that's out there, so on the nose. Thank you, fucking Hiller, for giving us that scene. It's like <laughs> we're coming out here to preach the good word. And one of them, oh, dude, the tire with that chick gets run over. That fucking got me. She's like, ah, oh, splat. I was like, oh, this is fucking brilliant. <laughs> So She's I'm, I'm, even that sequence when the bats are descending upon them and they use the 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 mat effect and the uh, I guess the, the overlay effect to uh, you know when they put it up there in the in the foreground when they bring the bats in even the the physical ones many of those I I could see were copied um, over to Piranha Two in the sequence when everybody's on the beach and the piranha come out of the ocean and start attacking everybody on the beach very very similar stuff done in there so I'm I'm going to pause it. That James Cameron took, would you, uh, Denova says, would you say jail is becoming a little batty? <laughs> I am over this fucking film. I absolutely am. I will say that James Cameron took direct inspiration from, from the work of legendary uh, special effects artist Carlo Rambaldi going into, because he, like you, uh, Eugene, it's like you, you go in and you're a DP and all of a sudden you're fucking directing. So when you're like, oh, I'm directing. Well, I, I, I did come in as director, so you don't really have the director's plan. You now have to make it up on the fly. And well, also, you, you have to keep in mind, so Cameron, coming from a special effects background, he's going to watch movies for the special effects. He's right. going to – that's the main thing. All the special effects artists I know – that's what they do. They're looking for the head explosions. They're looking for the prosthetic effects. They are looking for this and that, and they're trying to figure out well, how they do that. And they're going to focus more on that sometimes than the actual story or cinematography or anything else because that's what they're passionate about. And the thing is, despite the fact that they've never worked together, doesn't necessarily mean that Cameron never tried. There could also be times where maybe Cameron reached out to him a couple of times and maybe he was busy, he was booked, and it was just never able to get their schedules to kind of line up to work together. Good. And so, so, I mean, sometimes that happens, but I guarantee you the fact that they at least knew each other, they probably maybe at least had a conversation at some point or at least um, they at least have mutual friends. And if you have Cameron suddenly thrown into a directing role, he's going to go back to the movies that influenced him. It's like, you know what? I like this with Nightwing. I'm going to follow this formula because I like these effects because these are the ones that I aspire to create. Right. So hands <laughs> hands down, Cameron's going to focus on that stuff early on in his career because that's how you get better. You see an awesome effect and go, I want to see if I can pull that off. Hey, let's let's be real here. You might be onto something, but like you got to think it's it's Cameron. So he probably, like you said saw this work, reached out, wanted to work with them, was told no multiple times and was like, you know what? Fine. Fuck you. You're not going to work with me. I'm just going to steal your shit. 
I don't think at the time he was big enough to start running his mouth like that. He I think he's he now, but I think he's always been that way. That's how we got him. <laughs> this, of course, is complete and total speculation. Uh, I'm just because there's just too many similarities. So James, James, the shit James Cameron so, pops in on the stream and he's like, <laughs> "That's so, not how so, it went down." We're like, "How did you get here?" <laughs> so if James, oh, he has his ways. He's innovative. Oh, so yeah. if if James Cameron wants to set the record straight, he can hit us up at weekendhorror at gmail.com and explain to me why so many of those scenes look so fucking... It's not a bad thing. Carlo Rombaldi was a fucking legend. You know, I love all of his work. L- listen, okay? James Cameron has a power. James Cameron went back in time to 1912 to sink a <laughs> ship so that his, 90, his 1997 film will be based on a true story. So, like... <laughs> he has the power... Oh, I fucking love it. And still, I still, I don't care what people, I don't care what a lot of people think. Piranha 2 was fucking awesome. That movie was great. Even though Cameron really doesn't like that movie, I think the reason that movie is good is because of Cameron. Because he did what he did, because he had great art direction and great special effects. And fucking flying piranha. That's fucking scary. You know, it's like, ah! You know, I, I fucking love that movie. I love Piranha 2 The Spawning. So I well, of course, of course, Cameron doesn't. Cameron's going to be like, oh, I don't like that film. When you've directed things like Terminator 2. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And, the, fucking, the fucking abyss. <laughs> the abyss. <laughs> and Avatar and all these. It's like, yeah, Prawn is my kind of weak early start. <laughs> we all have them. Ronan L.S. Name says, so JL is saying that James Cameron was on the grassy knoll. Got it. <laughs> so, who uh, who knows man but i love cameron's work but i have to say there's definitely my i'm speculating there's definitely some rumbaldi uh some rumbaldi influence there i just got to give that out just got to all right that's my that yes and someone said that tonight's rabbit hole was brought to you by rain shadow legends no i'm just kidding I know, I'm not. This, this podcast is not sponsored by by rain shadow legends <laughs> okay so I want to go and I want to ask the audience. And I know we have we have our kind of a original idea of the call to action. But I want to know from the people, if you've seen the movie Nightwing, did you like it, dislike it, or find it offensive? And if you haven't seen it, at least, at the very least, watch a trailer for it and definitely check it out. It's free on YouTube. It's a great film. But I want to know what the audience thinks of the film as a whole. Like, hey, this was a great film. I'm glad that y'all recommended it in the podcast. Or, no, this film was offensive and it was terrible and I would never want to talk to y'all again. Either way, <laughs> just let us know. <laughs> so uh, comment below or shoot us an email at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Awesome. I say it's got David Warner in it. They're off four lights. It's got fucking David Warner who tortured Picard in it. Fuck you. I mean, there's my sci-fi nerd coming out. Dude, come on, Picard, David, you know, uh, Patrick Stewart, David Warner working together back and forth. Oh, fucking hell. That's one of my favorite episodes of TNG. Holy shit. David Warner's great. The the omen, David Warner, you know, like took the plate of, plate of glass right to the neck. Blah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the sound i would have made so. <laughs> all right JL. all right hold on hold on what's that noise what's that noise 
It's not. It's not the turn polisher nine thousand. It's not firing up. No, no, not the turn polisher nine thousand. I may have to. I, well, not really, because okay. So you're already backtracking. You've already. That's how it starts. It's like no, I'm not gonna polish it. Well, what they tried was. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Let's go into our next film. Released June twenty third, nineteen eighty two. I just turned two years old. Uh, we have the movie Satan's Mistress, but it was also released. Um, and this is this is one of the things that I think. What? What? You want you know, me to list them? Not that great. Demon no. Ray, also Demon known seed. as. <laughs> <laughs> what I like, Dark Eyes, Fury of the Succubus, <laughs> I, which which doesn't even, that that title doesn't even make any fucking sense. But I will say this: uh, there is no trailer for this film. The entire movie is free on YouTube, and I have linked it in our Discord. So the link for our Discord is down in the description. If you want to watch the entire film, it is available there. Just be prepared. There are a lot of titties in this, and we will we will uh, talk about that. But uh, Satan's <laughs> Mistress, uh, Satan's Mistress, shot in 1980 and uh, released in 1982, uh, directed by James Polakoff, written by Beverly Johnson and James Polakoff, and starring... Uh, the legendary Lana Wood, Britt Eklund, Kabir, Betty, Don Galloway, and a cameo by horror favorite John Carradine as the priest, Father Stratton, who's going to come in and do the Harbinger shit for Dude, you. I can never see a priest in a horror movie ever again and not think, I kick ass for the Lord. I kick ass for the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so the film the film Satan's Mistress follows a, a sexually frustrated housewife, Lisa, played by Lana Wood, who having, uh, you know, it was slowly becoming estranged from her busy, you know, husband, Carl. And she begins having, in her loneliness, begins having nightly trysts with an apparition that gradually takes on the form of a tall and dark stranger. Played by the, I will say, very handsome Kabir uh, Betty, um, who turns out to be a ghost from the other side. But a ghost with an, with an ulterior motive. Um it sounds so, like a Daniel Steele book. That's this what it is so like. Daniel Steele. It really, really is. So ultimately, you know, this film, I think, unfortunately, and I know Eugene's going to talk about the lighting issue on this one because that's what we're going to talk about. But it really is ultimately, despite the fact that this has the legendary Lana Wood in it, is just another 80s Satan sex romp and doesn't really bring what could have been a compelling story. Uh, what? Just fall. It could have been falls what? into <laughs> falls into schlock. It, it falls too quickly into schlock. The what only thing they eighties horror movies that were all about like let's show as many boobs as possible so we can yeah, get so all the, of we, the people in there. Was, there was one set of boobs many many times. Yeah, we yeah. Had. one set of tits many many times. <laughs> okay, you got to look at it though. We kind of touched a little bit on it earlier. Uh, somebody in the live chat, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was, said something about you know these are like driving movies. They're not really looking at, at the movies when they're going to the you know, kids aren't going there to watch the movie. These films are low on plot because, because because producers know what kids at drive-ins are right. doing. It's money grab, <laughs> and it's it's real early in the eighties where this was really popular, and you, you got a lot of really big names. Everybody's getting into horror around this time, you know, more now than ever, and so you've got. You've got an opportunity to make a movie because honestly, it could have been very good. The plot wasn't terrible, kind of generic, but they could have they could have gone a lot farther with it, and they didn't, and it, it fell short. Just just like so many, it's, you try to look up, you know, eighties. What do we got? Name one good one. Uh, Evil Dead was pretty good, but like, 
I guess that wasn't really like a Satan movie. I can't remember off the top of my head any 80s Satan movies that were memorable because they were all just cash. Well, listen, when you show up to a film called... bullshit. You have a film that's called Satan's Mistress that came out in the theater. You're going to the theater alone with like some paper towels. That's, that's, why that, that's, that's all I'm saying. A certain hub didn't exist at the time. That's why so... they put the Kleenex box in the back of 80 Toyotas. Paul Rubens, what are you doing here? So, <laughs> oh no, low blow. Raymond Archer says, what, "What's wrong with eighty sex romps? Porky's was great. Porky's was great. Porky's was also in like Animal House and fucking Revenge of the Nerds, like that. But those were comedies. This one is really, really trying hard to be a horror thriller. You know, it and it had and it had some decent. It, it had what I interpreted to be it." Some de- which could have been some decent moments, like the the these epic, you know, like the epic setup to the decapitation scene when the guy goes down in the basement and gets head lopped off, and <laughs> all of the camera work was designed to try and create this growing scent. All the all the camera work, all of the lighting, and all of oh, sorry, all of the sound were designed to create this growing sense of dread as more and more is revealed about what this entity is and what its intentions are, which are sensibly to kill her and bring her back over to the spirit realm, you know, forever because. As the movie puts out, spirits are lonely because they're dead, and human loneliness can draw them into the physical world. And so that's what the that's what unites them was the loneliness. But then the spirit doesn't want to lose her. So if she dies, she can join it and they can be in the spirit world together. And so, and there's kind of like a weird satanic vibe to it because there's another another woman that gets involved. It's not really well explained, but the biggest issue on this one was the fucking lighting. And I think that that's what, that's what Eugene was alluding to earlier when we were talking about lighting on, uh, on, uh, I was a teenage werewolf. Oh, it was, hands down. The budget went to Lana, Lana with boobs. That is exactly <laughs> where the budget went to nothing else because it is not shot. Well, it is not lit. Well, the visual effects, if you want to call them that, look terrible the first time the spirit comes in you have this blue blob yeah that just kind of like comes in and it was like somebody shined a flat like a bad flashlight on the wall it was like oh, yeah it was just here it goes like, it was like this it was just weird and i always judge special effects based on when star wars came out and it's like okay <laughs> now you have a new hope comes out in 1977. You have the new standard of, of visual effects, and this movie came out in '82. And like, wow, wow, really had wow. the C team on this one. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with the eyes effects when they they glowed. The thing is, this movie this is one step up from Brazzers. If we just really want to be honest, it's one step away. Um, I, I really couldn't get into the plot that much uh i as, as soon as it was like they had the graphics come up and it was like the loneliness draws a supernatural so that they can bond together and share and loneliness i'm looking around at the computer like can i should i be should i close the door and walk this? <laughs> like, <laughs> didn't say nsfw <laughs> <laughs> that was the, that was the that was such a bummer. And what what really really got me on this one was while I was sitting there watching this movie, and 
piecing it, he was kind of like, okay, I see what's happening here. The, you know, the, the, the involvement of the daughter and, you know, like all these, all these traumatic sequences and, you know, John Carradine, I, you know, I was wait, kind of waiting for the John Carradine ca- cameo at one point for him to come in and be like, oh, you've got the devil over there. Oh, you know, do his little fucking harbinger <laughs> shit. And, you know, he come and get his paycheck and then move along. Um, cause, because there's no exorcism scene. So literally they just go to a graveyard and talk to the nearest priest, have to be John Carradine. John Carradine. So, but the thing that got me on this one, and this is, it goes, I think that the reason for this film, number one, the film was extremely cheap. It was just a thrown together film really fast. But the big draw on this obviously was, was Lana Wood. Now, for those unfamiliar with Lana Wood, um, which you may do with this new, with this current generation, Lana Wood was the sister of Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood, uh, her untimely demise, her death was you know, remains one of the big kind of like mysteries of Hollywood. La, uh, her sister uh, Natalie drowned off the coast of I believe it was Santa Catalina of Catalina Island, um, and it was long kind of hypothesized that Robert Wagner was involved in that and. The the it, with that stress going on in her life because she died in 1980, and so you have this film being shot in the same year that her that her legendary sister, you know, uh, Natalie Wood ends up, you know, ends up dying, and then you have Lana Wood, Bond girl, has this kind of idea, uh, has this kind of like the idea of what Hollywood makes of Bond girls at the time because she was in uh, Diamonds Are Forever. What I got from this movie. And what and what was going on with Lana at the time and what was happening is that there's a reason why Satan's mistress was Lana Lana Woods. Oh, the searchers. Yes. Thank you, Casey Cooper, the searchers, which is where she really broke out. The this film was the last film that that Lana would do for like 20 years. And then she she went into production, went behind the camera you know, quiet life for like 20 years. Then she eventually, you know, 20, 20 years, oh, I think a little over 20 years later, came back and was in front of the camera again. But given all the things that were going on, the one takeaway I had from Satan's Mistress was it was an unabashed look at what Hollywood would often do to its starlets. Because Lana Wood was a fucking Bond girl. Lana Wood worked with virtually every major top-tier actor and director in her career and this is where her like like her opening career stops at satan's mistress which is essentially just you know lana lana showing her breasts the entire film you know in this lackluster badly lit poorly constructed haphazardly written low budget schlock fest and we're talking to the girl who has worked with who, who worked on bond films who was world renowned the sister of natalie wood but with a combination of natalie's death the combination of Robert Wagner's influence in Hollywood at the time, the view of her being a Bond girl where her sexuality is what really is her selling point. No, it's not. Lana Wood is a fucking phenomenal actress. All leads to the stress position where it's kind of like, what do you have for me? I've got to get out. And Satan's mistress comes off to me like that last, like that, that last fucking movie you do to get that paycheck and get the fuck out. It's like maybe she was under contract to do another film for 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 the for the production company, and she had to get out. She just, just let me grab something, throw me in there, whatever. I got to get the fuck out of this place and deal with it, you know, from another and do this from another perspective. I got that that this was kind of like Lana trying desperately to get out of a bad situation, and so here's this silly fucking movie. Let's just do it and get it over with so that she can get the fuck out of the limelight because Hollywood had become too much. That's what I kept getting from this thing. 
we're sorry, folks. The turd polisher 9000 has broken. Um, <laughs> we I told you I didn't. Real I, shit instead. I told you I didn't need it. I didn't need it on this one. There's nothing to polish about Satan's Mistress other than it's rough when you watch it and you think about what was going on in Hollywood at the time. What was going on the center around Lana Wood. After, like, after Natalie died, all of a sudden the spotlight's on her. And the relationship, you know, the, the kind of, you know, tertiary, because, you know, Natalie was married to Robert at the time. Robert was extremely influential, you know, in Hollywood. And then all of a sudden you see Lana's career kind of like, kind of like dip. And then Satan's mistress and she's out. Well, I think this is a commentary. Well, the thing is, is it's people who are regarded as sex symbols and sex symbols come and go so quickly because everybody's always looking for the next sex symbol. Not to mention when you have somebody, they come in, they're a Bond girl. It's an obvious sex symbol position. You hit that height. And then as you age, and this is just unfortunate, as you age, your value decreases. And as your value decreases, Hollywood is already looking for the next one, the next one. And you see it even today. It is easier for an attractive woman to break into Hollywood than it is for a male. Hands down, it is easy if you take even somebody, for example, like Megan Fox. Never ever considered Megan Fox a great actress, but she was attractive enough to break into Hollywood. She had her limelight. I'll give her uh, wait. I'll give Megan Fox. I'll give Megan Fox this. Wait, 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 wait. Solid. Well, she was solid in Jennifer's body. I'll give her that. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Jennifer's body is a fun, campy film. But what ends up happening is it trails off. People always looking for the next one, and you begin to lose that in Hollywood. Now, are there exceptions? Yeah, you have people like Kate Winslet and uh, Helen Miriam who are just that top-tier class of acting, but they're able to carry films on their own based on their ability to act, whereas a lot of these starlets come in, they can't. They're the hot new thing, and then people are like, well, cool, all right, well, she had her 15 minutes. What do you got next? And it just trails off. And unless you are able to carry yourself as a top tier actress or unless you're able to marry somebody of power in Hollywood, you eventually fade out. And nowadays, instead of just fading away, you end up in reality television, which is kind of the bottom of media. You're known as somebody who was in this. And that's how you just make money from then on out. <laughs> Tony Regime says solid <laughs> solid in Jennifer's body is an unfortunate choice of words to clip. Absolutely. Wrote in the last name, you're right. Jennifer Connolly as well. Many uh, Jessica Chastain, you know, so many, you know, solid uh, uh you know, solid you know, solid actresses out there, so many dominant actresses out there. And uh and while yes, I will agree with this, Javers has brought up what do you mean at the time Hollywood has never stopped being a toxic cesspool? I will I will That's agree. True. There is a toxic cesspool mentality to it, unless you unless you have the connections and the money to shield yourself from it, which is few and far between. Not everybody can do it. However, it's different nowadays in the sense that post Me Too, there is a there is a voice. Women do uh, uh, women do have a voice. Women directors, you know, and I honestly think it kind of it kind of kicked off. And I'm going to give credit here with Catherine Bigelow with her uh, with her win for the Hurt Locker. That's when things really began to change, but because Catherine was like, yes, women can be up here as well and win fucking, you know, Best Director, Best Picture Academy Awards and shit. And, but now post Me Too, the 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 environment has changed. Back in the 70s and the 80s, 
there was that kind of silent um, um, objectification. And unfortunately, I think someone as talented as Lana, even someone as talented as Natalie, Natalie Wood did not get her fair shake either. I mean, she was put up there. She was a sex symbol. And yes, she'd worked with many, many, you know, great leading men and many great directors. But I think it would have happened to her to happen to Natalie as well. But, you know, unfortunately, Natalie passed away and it happened to Lana. And Lana saw the way the, the wind was blowing. In my interpretation, this is total speculation on my part. Lana saw the way the wind was blowing and used what money she had and what connections she had. And she backed away from the camera and said, I'm going to go more into production and behind the scenes, just working, working there, because that's where I need to be out of the limelight and away from it. And there she was yeah. able to reach. Yeah. Well, you, you also have to keep in mind, like studios look, they look at people and go, how can you make me money? That's how studios and that's how studios have always thought. And especially back then, when you're looking at, like, say, the quote unquote golden era of Hollywood, where directors were no name people, hmm. you, they, they weren't. You cycle through directors just like anybody else. Um, it, was, it wasn't until recently in the last probably about 20 years, directors have finally been able to like have their own staying power. But you have you will have these starlets that will go through and they just get used up. And then, unfortunately, when people talk, oh, who are the great people like Marilyn Monroe and Sharon Tate? The reason why they live at that at that high pedestal back then was because. We never saw them age. Right. That's it. We've never seen what Marilyn Monroe looks like at 70 or at 50 because she was at the height of her beauty before she died. Sharon Tate was at the height of her beauty before they died. So they all they're like, oh, people look at Marilyn Monroe and like, oh, man, that's that Hollywood standard. That's why she's the last for so long because of her unfortunate, untimely past. Nat Natalie Wood as well. Yeah, so, Natalie Wood yeah. as well. So, mm -hmm. and, and that's that's something that is very unfortunate. And I'm really glad to see that Hollywood is kind of backing women more. Like, you don't have to go through people like the Weinsteins. You don't have to degrade yourself to try to make it into Hollywood because that was a route. A lot of people thought that was the only route to get into Hollywood. So, and we've seen again, not only Lana Wood, who was able to come back after 20 years, start being in front of the camera again, but uh, I will say another example that would be Kelly McGillis. Kelly McGillis did the exact same thing, got to a certain point, took time off, walked away, did her thing, and then eventually was able to come back and has been working, has been working regularly as well. So I would say that's the thing that got me about Satan's Mistress was I, I couldn't get out of my mind was, you know, despite what this is and seeing Lana, you know, Lana's, you know, excellent breasts. Um, it was just the what that this film was the an ignominious exit to a legendary and extraordinarily talented actress who had so much who has so much talent, and I'm so glad that she's come back. And you know, she was producing at the time, but Mao is back in front of the camera and working as well. And I got to give her credit for that. She survived that onslaught and she made it through as difficult as that was. Um, but the CTA, the the question I want to ask the audience tonight, um. Regarding Satan's Mistress. Now, at the time the Satan Mistress, Satan's Mistress came out, there was another movie that came out about sexy times with uh, with a ghost. Sexy times with 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 Bow Chicka Wow with a ghost. Oh, scary movie. Oh, it, 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 <laughs> so my so the and that movie was the entity starring Barbara Hershey. The difference between Satan's Mistress and the entity was that the sex 
in the entity or the sex in, I would say the sex in Satan's mistress was consensual in the entity. It was decidedly not both of them are horror films. Both of them center around the same thing, but there is that one major difference, which obviously narratively speaking is a huge fucking thing, but they deal with the, they deal with the aspect from a feminine perspective, from two different feminine perspectives. One is the lonely housewife, the lonely and ignored housewife. The other one is the woman that no one takes seriously. And both of them, I thought, approach the same, kind of like the same subject matter from two different angles. But I want to ask the entity, oh, sorry, I want to ask the audience, who do you think did it better? What would, obviously, which one who handled the topic better and approached it better? The entity or Satan's mistress slash demon seed slash demon fury slash the fury of the succubus? Yeah, so I, I really think it depends on what type of film you're trying to watch. If you're trying to watch something that's like, a, okay, let's kind of go into a possession, you have the entity. If you're looking for alone time, then I'm going to go with Satan's mistress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because because that alone time, you know, is so different when you're watching the entity. <laughs> it really wow. is. I mean, you can power so through it; it's just harder. <laughs> I, feel, I feel so guilty. <laughs> That was gross. That was oh, so gross. Man. But definitely let us know in the comments which one was the strong one. I see a lot of love, a lot of love for the entity in there. Sir Kaz says the entity was way better. Strange like 790. Good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Says uh the entity as well. Uh, that was an intense fucking movie. That was it. it. The entity got me. That one was uh was a hard one. Um, but yeah, let us know down in the comments below or we can horror at gmail.com. All right, Alex, take us home. <laughs> Listen, we can shut the turd polisher down here. We're going to talk about, which I find one of the best film titles ever, Accidental Exorcist. Came out June 24th, 2016. Let's see, let's see a trailer. They could have probably pulled away from that tagline of evil touches all of us. Yeah, that was a really bad segue from the previous <laughs> film. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know that was, there, so that was that was <laughs> that was a surprise. Um, but aside from that, this film being a a very unique, original, um, and I think in depth look at the genre, directed by Daniel Felicki, uh, written by Warren Crowell, Sherry Bath, and Daniel Felicki. This one is, um, it's, I've lost my entire cast list here. Hold on. You got Daniel Fleeky, Faye Sills, Cheryl, uh, Cheryl Desperus. See, sorry, I was pulling a Eugene there. David Higby, um, Julian Howe is in this one. So this one, essentially a natural, a, a natural born exorcist is dealing with the the day to day life of you know as we all know how to deal with satanic fucking possessions every day of our lives, um, battling his own demons kind of starts to embrace the fact that he has this gift and he is helping people and slowly kind of has to fight his own demons to um, to fight real demons, essentially. So it's I'm having a hard time explaining it because there's kind of two things to this. You've got kind of like this, this addiction story kind of laid into this really cool, unique look at the genre of demon possession and exorcism where... You've got this exorcist who is kind of forced into the role. It's not like he, you know, chose this. It, it chose him. So he got to take this, kind of hate it, and then slowly love 
what he does and it kind of gets into a little bit of trouble left right left right left right he just kind of gets hit from all directions but keeps popping back up so it's a it's a story of triumph it's a story of battling demons not only you know biblical but your inner demons as well i thought this one was really good i really enjoyed this one i'd never even heard of it it's a new movie which i was shocked newer movie fuck 2016 was a while ago but uh, <laughs> but yeah i was i was kind of blown away that i'd never seen this one before because of how unique and original it was i figured more people would be talking about it i think one of the things that it kind of got swept under because it's a good premise and it's a really fun movie to watch but the one of the things is and i'll be straight up honest the cinematography is not great and i think that's one of the things that really probably lost a lot of people is because it feels and i've said this before it feels like a student film I think I said about the D Wallace film was like last week or the week before last. It feels like a student film in terms of the lighting and the camera quality. And so initially right off the bat, like as soon as I started watching, I was like a, uh, okay, I'm gonna, I'll I'll stick with it because I have to, (laughs) but I'm going to complain about it the entire time. <laughs> and then it turns out, I was like, oh, okay, it, it is a fun movie. Um, but I think it's something that probably hurt it was just kind of a failure on some of the technical aspects. I suppose if you're not looking for, if you're looking for, you know, a, a blockbuster, this wasn't it. This wasn't a, a, a money grab, but it, it, the story, the story and the way that they approached the exorcism aspect of it. Cause there had already been, there's already, I mean, we have fucking tapped out exorcist movies. It's, right. it's played and, and you pull into this one at 2016 and there's still some unique takes on what the exorcist goes through. And a lot of them you're focusing on, on the demon part of it on this one. It's kind of like, okay, this guy's really fucking going through it. Let's, let's kind of stand by his side while he goes through it. And I like that's what I what I dug for uh, a lot about this one is the film felt very like Eugene is correct it did feel a bit like a student film, but what I really really enjoyed was the almost experimental nature of the film itself. The idea of like this natural exorcist, um, the we see that the character um, that Daniel Flicky, who was the direct he directed it and he also starred in it. It was uh, Richard Vanek uh, who played the character of Vanek. So he's a stick. So he suffers from the stigmata. And his suffering from the stigmata gives him this natural ability to essentially yank the demons out of people and draw them what it looks to be through himself and then expel them out. So, but this constant pressure of this, of, you know, like this, like calling that he has, he suffers from the stigmata. It's extraordinarily painful and gruesome. And now he's being tasked by this kind of like faceless authority to go out and fight these demons. And he's a nobody. There is nothing arguably special about Vanek other than the fact that he was tapped. That's it. So he was tapped to be, to have this gift. And now he's going out to go and do this. And so he's running around doing house calls, taking out demons. And we see this at this point when we come into the story, which is what I loved about it, the the experimental aspect. It's not the origin story. This has been going on for him for a long time fucking time we see him we're coming into the story at the end of his rope where the constant you know the brutality of what he's doing 
never knowing what he's walking into. At this point, he is a full-blown alcoholic, likely a drug addict. And if he's not out exercising, he's fending off his landlord, who I have to admit had some fantastic improv lines. <laughs> fantastic. I loved his improv. But it's, yeah, it was fending off his landlord's threats or hanging out in a bar getting drunk with what very, very little money he has. So a, we, we come into the film with a broken protagonist, an absolutely broken protagonist who cannot do anything about what is about this gift he's given. And the one time he tries to walk away, he quickly realizes that he cannot, that the world that is outside, like the nine to five everyday life, is just not going to swing. It'll drive him fucking insane. So he goes right back into it. I loved that, having a broken protagonist and walking in and how the demons themselves were not the classic representation of what demons are. And what the trailer kind of misses were the were not, I wouldn't say not the Raimi comedy, that's not campy comedy, but there are some funny moments in this where he is dealing with this because you have the guy, he's, he's a seasoned veteran. I'm coming in here, I'm going to break this shit down. You know, it's like, and you know, what gross nastiness am I going to be faced with at this point? And he's going in there with that kind of like, I'm going to win. Fuck, man. But I'm probably drunk and I'm all fucked up and I don't know. And I haven't slept in days. So like, fuck it. And he goes in there with that kind of aloofness, which is antithetical to what ostensibly he's being, which is like an on-call exorcist. So I like that approach. This, you know, nobody being brought into like what something that is held with such esteem, like, oh, this is exorcism and God and demons and the devil and the fight between good and evil. And this cast just like, man, I have so fucking had enough of it. I am so goddamn done. Got third one today. Fuck. But he's still going out and, and he's fighting with it, you know, and I love that. And then the little moments, there were moments where the, de where the, where the demons will talk to him or he'll talk to them. And you know, the exchange of information before they get down to the nitty gritty. I really, really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the writing on this. I thought it was strong, but there were a lot of experimental moments where I think they were just kind of let's let's create a scenario as a director and a writer. Let's say this is the scenario. You're walking in. There's a demon possessed dude. He's super, super fucking fat. He's a huge, huge obese, uh, obese guy who's possessed. There's food everywhere. But none of it's been touched. Okay? You're walking situation. What happens? And just run with it. And I got that sensation from a lot of the sequences in this. It's kind of like walking in, let's play it organically. Which I thought was very risky, but really intriguing. Which kept me glued to the screen. But I the really enjoyed Felicki's approach to this. And the writer, I will say, um, Warren Croyle. Because Warren and Daniel have a very similar similar relationship to me and Eugene, where I write and Eugene goes and directs it. <laughs> yep. and I, thought it was, I thought it was fucking cool. It's like he's his writing partner. So I really dug that. I like what they were with, not what they were trying to do, what they pulled off for what the, for the money they had and what they had right. to work with. Some good Raimi influences, some solid writing, good experimental. Let's play with it and see where it goes organically. And then lead up to that fucking climax when he brings like the dream girl home from the bar. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that shit. Wait a what second. the fuck? You but know? no, you're, you're not wrong. There was a lot of like almost improv. It, it was like exactly like you said, set the scene, walk in. And that's what, you know, Flicky, there's a lot of like humor and it's not forced. And that's, I think, what makes it fit is it's not like 
Sometimes um, it's almost tragic. It, right. It, it, yeah. It's like he's um, Sir Chasm said it was repetitive, doing the same routine over and over again. But I think that in itself is what made his trial so interesting. Yeah. And that is the fact that he was still kind of looking into it. There was like this jaded aspect to him. But he would. He would take like these pictures and he would kind of talk to the demons and he'd be interested in some stuff and he'd throw jokes around like, yeah, whatever, I do this every day. You know, you can't touch me. I don't give a shit what happens to me. But, you know, maybe there's a little interest there. Like maybe let's find a deeper meaning. And and it's it's so natural. And the humor, that's what got me was the humor wasn't forced. It wasn't written um, in a way. It, you could tell that they allowed Flicky, well, you know, he, he was directing. So you got to play... He's like, no, I don't like it that way. That sounds too forced. And would go back and probably just improv the shit out of it, which made it supernatural. That was not a pun. Um, it made it very natural, which, <laughs> which made the comedy work in such a dark situation. Like, it doesn't come off as it's supposed to be funny. It's almost kind of sad. But, you know, you feel him. I would always it, classify it, this as like, a tra- as like a tragic comedy horror. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it reminds me a lot of Buffy the TV show. Because you have a character that is just called right. that Buffy didn't ask to be the Slayer or she didn't do anything to become the Slayer. It's just this ability that's awoken to her. And now all of a sudden she has to save the world time and time again. And you notice how she approaches various situations because there are times where you forget that she's a 16 year old girl. Then there are other times where you have this horrific thing happening, and she's like, oh, Don's kidnapped. It must be a Tuesday. Um, (laughs) The very nonchalant part, and how many times that she's gone into these brutal fights, and she's just like, yeah, you're going to kill me. I know I'm going to win. Right. I just know you're going to get some good hits in. It's going to hurt. It's going to suck a lot, but I'm still going to win. Oh, regardless, and it, it just it just it just made me think of that. And I've always liked I like characters that are given abilities that don't ask for them or don't necessarily want them, but they can't right. do anything else. And it's kind of like the life they're destined to do that. Like oh, sarcasm said, do that over and over again, and that's that cycle that they're stuck in for the rest of their life, and they know that, and how they deal with that is what makes those characters interesting. Right, it's that you, it's that feeling of like, okay, here we go again, I do this three times a day, every day, seven <laughs> days a week, but I'm pretty fucking good at it, so. Yeah. It, he just, he just you, Eugene, with that reference with to Buffy, you just, you reminded me of the musical episode when the musical demon was kind of like, you know, I could just kill you. And she's like, won't help. And he's like, oh, that's gloomy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that scene, which is like, trust me, won't help. Oh, that's gloomy. (laughs) But I I do do dig that. And one thing I really, really liked um, was there's there's one particular demon when he goes in and it's it's this this guy who who calls him in and it was like to exercise his brother. That was what that one that sequence right there I felt was the was the best of the bunch of like the the, the random exorcism that he's getting called into the uh, when he gets called into to to exercise the brother and the guy who calls him is like this devout Catholic is like father you're here like this and he's coming in there and he actually has to put on the uh, uh, what's the name of it I can't remember the 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 collar he has to put the collar on to go in and, and be the whole like fucking, you know, well, I'm the Catholic exorcist here. I am no idea anything about the Catholic faith. 
completely ignorant of the whole process. He knows there's a Bible involved and he has some rudimentary knowledge, but the guy who called him obviously knows more. And so he's making up shit on the fly to try and be like, yeah, this is all about, it's not. It's because it, to, to this guy, who I think, although it's never really established, that the character himself may have actually been an atheist, who may or may have been irreligious or simply didn't care, is now suddenly thrust, this is thrust upon him. And so he realized that, like, the faith doesn't matter. None of this fucking, like, you know, candles and, like, ritual and Latin, none of that shit fucking, the Latin, none of it fucking matters. There's monsters here, and I can cast them out. You know, it doesn't, it's all fucking smoke and mirrors. And so he goes in there and we see that the guy who's seen behind the curtain, who's seen how the sausage is made and then interacting with somebody who still has all the, all the illusions and still operating as though like, Oh, it has to be this way with this kind of reverence, which is completely pointless. And I like that they posed it that way as like this evil exists. You have to fucking fight it. All of the bold, all the trimmings, all the window, all that other bullshit is all fucking window dressing, just to like you know whatever. And I love how it might be a Smith and Wesson, it might be a Taurus, doesn't matter. You <laughs> gotta kill it. Matter. And I liked, I liked that Croyle, that that writer Warren Croyle went there and presented it that way. I thought that was really, really smart. So if you can get past the very, very gooey grossness, because there's a lot of, you know. Sam Raimi style of Mises in this fucking movie. There is a lot. <laughs> Especially they're, watching words, listen, yeah. they're listening and watching a horror podcast. <laughs> oh, there's <laughs> so much. There's so much. It's 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 Peter Jackson level, Sam Raimi level, just shit getting in your fucking mouth. And people may not uh blah. um, but yeah, I would say give the definitely give this one a chance. It's free on Tubi right now. Go and take a look at it. You know, like like uh who is it who said that? Um I think it was Sarcasm said, I watched this one three times this week and still can't decide whether I loved it or hated it. And that's what makes it a good movie. Absolutely. The, the, the indifference of all of it. it the thing is, it, it, it sticks with you. And it, uh, it is also free on YouTube, by the way, too. Oh, excellent. Yes. Oh. Yeah, that's, that's where I watch watch it on YouTube. No, well, I mean, Tubi's got ads. So if you don't mind ads, watch it on Tubi because at least then the filmmakers will get some. Will you know? We'll get a few dimes from that one. But you can also watch on YouTube if you just don't like ads. So, cool. Well, hey, we're getting there. So let me let me ask the audience: If you've seen this one, do you think it's remake worthy? That's that's a loaded question. And before I watched it, I was like, well, "It's so new. Why would you do that?" But with a couple extra dollars, fuck, this could be this could be something. I. Would I think. I'll, I agree. This, these are the type of movies that need remakes. They're the ones that have great stories that maybe fall a little short on some of the technical or some of the cinematography, probably just because of budget restrictions. And it's like, they may have made this movie for, I don't know, I'm just throwing a number out, like maybe 200000 And it's like, I wonder what they could have done if they had a million dollars. Or yes. $2 million. Dollars, or $2 million. The, the budget to be able to get a good crew, a good camera, uh, fix some of the lighting issues, and then go with that because the story is solid. Listen, as long as they don't fucking cast John Cusack as the main character, <laughs> we're, we're right. So Sarcasm says, when he said the Bible was only 15% accurate, I nearly died laughing. That one was pretty... There's some good... <laughs> there is some smart fucking writing in this movie. I gotta give it to Croyle and, and Felicki. There was some really smart shit in this film. I really... I, I just stuck out. It was like, oh, fuck yes. 
Yes. Oh, I, you'll, I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, Tony Regime says, it doesn't matter how many times you watched it. You watched it again. And that is the sign of a potential cult film. That's exactly. Yep. 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 Absolutely. Yep. Rewatching movies. There's probably like five that I'll rewatch. This, this is probably going to be one of them. And Sarcasmo says, nope, don't touch it. The improv lines are what gives it its dark humor. If it was fully scripted, it would suck. And I agree. I will agree with that. The, the fucking improv moments, which are very obvious, are really good, especially the fucking landlord. The landlord was fucking killing me, man. <laughs> just when he's just coming up with that shit on the fly. I was like, who is this fucking asshole? Oh, well, he's the landlord, so I guess he can yell. I guess he, he could do that. You're behind on your rent, you know? <laughs> but what the fuck are you going to do? It's like, I was like, but I couldn't help it. It's like, if, if that landlord was yelling at me, I would just laugh my fucking ass. But probably if I laugh my ass, I would get my ass kicked too, because that was a big motherfucker. So. It reminds me oh. of the uh, the Will Ferrell landlord skit. <laughs> All right. So, you know what time it is, Eugene? Bam, 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 bam. You're to say it. Oh, trivia time. Oh. <laughs> Fucking beautiful, boys. <laughs> Everybody on the show is longing for the opportunity to win some swag from the Weekend Horror Store. We have so much cool stuff at the store right now. We have t-shirts. We have coffee mugs. We have stickers. We have all kinds of stuff in limited edition artwork stuff that is available. And Raven Darkstar says, damn it. Sorry, on. <laughs> it says, don't. She says, don't. It's like, yeah, she hates that. Raven Darkstar hates that. Don't do it. <laughs> hey, and if you haven't already, go up there and hit that like button. Um, Appreciate there's, that, yes. There's few few people in the chat and only less few likes. Smash the like button. Yes, absolutely. But here's tonight's trivia question. Remember, the first person who gets the correct answer in the live chat, we have that live chat up right now. First person to get the correct answer in the chat wins a mystery item from the Weekend Horror Store. So, Eugene, take it away. Get those. What? Damn, did he just get fucking banned from YouTube? <laughs> I think he just got booted. <laughs> Google Finger Freddy. Give you a question. Oh, am, am I back? Am I back now? No, you're okay, not. you're am back. Okay. I love all suspense. Perfectly timed. Plothole says I hit the like button twice. If you do hit the like button multiple times, please make sure it's an odd number. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, the trivia question is. AIP started in 1955 with crime and Western films. But what was their first horror film? AIP started in 1955 with crime and Western films. But what was their first horror film? The first person to comment below wins the mystery item from the store. I put some thought into this one. I had to go back, so... See what they've got. <laughs> All right, let's see what we got. Not as hard as the questions I was asking during the after dark. So, yeah, the after dark was hard. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to be a challenge. Who's see? Who's got the correct answer? Who's got the first answer? And we have bam! Right off the bat, we got it. Oh, Sherry wow. Tilly. The answer is Man. the beast with a million eyes. All right. Congratulations. Sherry Tilly, nailed it. Dang, 
So oh, Sherry, I mean, you've you've won. This is the second time you've won. You're you're challenging Travis Brown. Yeah. for the trivia championship here getting those getting those right answers in congratulations yes it was the beast with a million eyes which was about an alien organism that comes down and infects life and it can try to take it try to take over the planet and it can see through the eyes of everything that it infects so a kind of a hive monster thing but yes the beast with a million eyes was aip's first ever horror film congratulations sherry tilly we will get that printed out for you uh raven dark says damn it i tried uh, wrote uh, wrote in the list name says twenty eyes in my head. Uh, Casey Cooper also had beasts of a million beasts with a million eyes. Um, yes, but congratulations. Oh, Travis Brown says Sherry Sherry needs to come to the after dark, and you can. But we'll describe that here. We'll tell tell you how in just a moment because and I got to get the set. Oh wait 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 what? So Sherry Tilly said, "Can I donate my prize to someone who hasn't gotten anything yet?" You absolutely can share. Yes, you can. Absolutely. So definitely you can, uh, if you want to, uh, let us know via Discord or via weekendhorrorgmail.com who you would like to donate that prize to. We will get that printed and shipped out to them. So absolutely. Let us know. Because uh, it was Travis, Travis who did that last week. So you absolutely can donate your prize to someone else in the live chat. And well done. Thank you. Very generous of you. And of course, and I had to make sure I get this right. That's going to bring out, bring out, blah. That's going to close out another episode of the Week in Horror Podcast. Shut up, I can't fucking talk tonight. <laughs> anyway, that's going to close another episode of the Week in Horror Podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, smash that follow if you're listening to us on a, on a podcast site. Or that like and subscribe button to be sure to hit that bell so you never miss a future episode. Join us next week. When we look back at Hammer's version of The Phantom of the Opera, the chilling horror anthology Scare Us, Irish resurrection horror in Wakewood, and the brutality of post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic survival in The Domestics. Be sure to check out Josh Olson's store at BadSamurai.store. He does all the awesome artwork you see splattered all over our merchandise, which you can find over at Teespring. For more from Week in Horror, check out all the bloody links that are down in the description. Follow us on all the social medias for the Daily Splatter, your daily horror recommendation. Join our Discord for watch parties, big announcements, and all kinds of horror shenanigans. And support the show through our PayPal link or through our Patreon. You can join the higher tiers for early content access, behind-the-scenes fun. Come with us and hang out as a special guest judge on our Bloodbath debates. Or join us for our After Darks and win some more trivia prizes. Or even just support the show for as little as $1 a month. One dollar. One dollar a month. What are you waiting for? Join us. And as always, thank you all for being the greatest fucking audience a horror film podcast could possibly have. I am JL. I'm Alex. And I'm Eugene. We will see you all next week. And as always, stay scared.